Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the All About Alts podcast. I am your host, Jason DeBono. I am joined by Craig McGruther, who is the Director of Business Development for Lone Star Capital. Craig, how are you, man? I'm incredible. How are you? Good, good. Well, good to see you. We're going to have a little bit of fun today and kind of give our listeners a little bit of your background, kind of understanding of who you are, how you ended up in you know, the capital raising side of the world and investments. And we'll talk a little bit about what you guys are doing at Lone Star and some of the things you've done personally in your past. So if you're ready to go, we're going to dig right in. Very good. Let's talk a little bit about uh, maybe go all the way back to Craig's an Arizona guy. And so let's go back. Scottsdale resident currently, but went to school at University of Arizona. Let's talk a little bit about that. You stayed close to home, but what'd you study and what'd you learn through that process? Yeah. So studied urban and regional development, which is basically kind of a real estate centric major. I always knew for whatever reason, I wanted to be in the real estate business, kind of bizarre, kind of came out of the womb wanting to sell homes. And I started doing that and then transitioned from that into the capital raising world. So made that switch up and, you know, it's really made sense. And it just, real estate always just felt like the optimal career path for me. And I just never deviated from that. That's so cool. And for me going back, I mean, I was a marketing major. I wanted to be in sales. I didn't have the slightest idea that there was real estate degrees. And so here you are, you're going right into school, into real estate. You know, I know you mentioned coming out of the womb, but what was it about real estate or did you have some family exposure or some, you know, exposure in your your life that maybe led you down a career in the real estate world? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually didn't have any family members in real estate. It just always was what I wanted to do. I never changed my mind on it. It just kind of made the most sense to me. I always loved homes, obviously not selling homes anymore, but it just always made sense to me. How cool. So you came out of school and you got into real estate sales. I think you did that five, seven, eight years. So what was that like and kind of building up a book and working through the real estate market and navigating into that? Yeah, it was really tough. So I actually did grow up in the Bay Area, not Scottsdale. I just migrated here after. But It was incredibly challenging because there's really no homes that were under probably $2 million in my immediate vicinity. It's just how kind of the economics of the Bay Area shake out. So it was incredibly challenging to get into that world and to switch over and make that transition from literally no business, never done any sort of work outside of that into the most, maybe one of the most competitive and well-covered markets with essentially very low velocity. So there's incredibly low turnover in neighborhoods. So it was incredibly challenging. I didn't make my first sale for, I think, like a year and a half in the business, which has to challenge anyone in in the world who's competitive, where it's like, what the heck am I doing wrong? And you just learn really quickly that whatever you're doing, it's not enough. And every deal is incredibly rare. And it made you have to set your game up, but it was a incredibly challenging process. I think just maybe taught me some determination and really makes you question what you're doing and if it's worth it. Well, a year and a half, that says a lot about you and, and your willingness to dig in and persevere through it. That's a very tough market to break into. And, and it sounds like after that year and a half, you were able to find success and kind of navigate your way through that for another five or six years. Yeah, absolutely. So I was doing real estate 
in the Bay Area and then quickly realized that I didn't really want to live there long term. So I went to Scottsdale and then very quickly created my business back here. And, you know, frankly, I think any advice I could give to someone who's, you know, younger in their 20s, wants to get into real estate, I would probably recommend not going into such an established market, someone that has some room to grow. And, you know, Scottsdale, it was a price point that was a lot economically more reasonable to enter into. And I think that's really useful because a lot of your friends aren't going to be all cash buyers, are not going to be people that are buying $2 million homes out the gate, obviously. It might be someone who's buying on an FHA loan or something like that. It might be someone who's putting very, very little cash down. So it was a really nice situation to transition into here. And you know, there's a lot more, as I mentioned, velocity in the Bay Area, very little there, a lot higher turnover of homes and neighborhoods. So there's just more inventory and product to sell, which is really great because you learn so much more just by doing the job and learn on the fly like that juxtaposed to just waiting and sitting, maybe watching someone else, your mentor do a deal. It's hard to learn unless you're doing it yourself. So it was awesome. And, you know, fortunately I was able to be a top 1% agent prior to me switching, even just in 2022 to 2023 to working with Lone Star, I was top 1%, but I kind of knew that there was a lot more into the syndication world, the alt world, as you guys call it, that was calling to me. And fortunately, I had a great relationship with principal Rob Beardsley. He's one of my best friends. And it just made a lot of sense. And it just was a really organic fit from that switch. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that transition. And, and we'll certainly talk about kind of Lone Star and you know the investment philosophy there and how you guys approach the market. So, you know, let's just maybe pause back on not to make this all about your time selling real estate, but, you know, you mentioned a couple of things that I think are really important for the listeners to kind of hear. And that is significantly different market between the Bay Area and Scottsdale. And I, I think everyone gets it. But from a real estate standpoint, volume, ability, but you hit on something I want to maybe dig in on. And that is, you know, your network. And when you're selling, when you're young and there's a lot of young professionals listening to this. It's always hard to build credibility when you're a 20-something and, and your average customer. So I, had, I have a baby face now. Yeah, I had a way bigger, bigger baby <laughs> face back then, as you can imagine. So yeah, sorry to cut you off, but I just had that thought in my head. <laughs> no, it's really hard. I mean, going through that and you know, I started right out of school with New View and I remember talking to people about their retirement accounts and it was hard for someone 20 years old or 22 years old to talk to someone that was say 50 that was looking at investing. So how did you overcome that? You know, what was maybe some advice for our listeners today in terms of what can they do if they do want to enter into a market, maybe that does at least require, or there's an expectation that's a little more maturity. How do you help people break through that? And what guidance can you give to those listening today? Yeah, well, it took time more than anything is just, you really have to be the expert to convince people and to have the competitive advantage for them to want to work against you because, you know, just any real estate market, you know, typically speaking, it's incredibly dynamic and, you know, to a large extent, it is a numbers game. So, you know, I remember I was cold calling and I was doing like 10,000 dials every single month on a dialer and stuff, just do anything I can to drum up business. And then obviously working my sphere of influence, which is friends and families and such. But to be frank with you, it's incredibly difficult to get going, but you just have to keep building momentum and try to get better and be willing to learn. And, you know, that said, if you want to be the expert and you want to get to the next level, you got to be the expert and you got to put the work in to get to the next level. And you really have to know your numbers and present yourself in a positive manner. And, you know, for someone like myself, likely I have to dress a little bit nicer than maybe someone who's older. I have to have maybe my hair cut a little bit better. I have to do every little small incremental thing that will add up to create a big win because that's how tough and dynamic the market is. You know, you're working against really sophisticated people. So you just have to present yourself in the best manner and put your best foot forward. Well, certainly 
the little things do matter and love hearing people say that because it amazes me. You know, we joke internally, people come into an interview, you know, and you're thinking this is, you know, how they showed up to the interview. But it sounds like, you know, you've overcome that and said, I'm going to show up overdressed, overly ready to deliver. Well, this is actually casual for Lone Star Capital. So <laughs> Rob, hopefully if he sees this or not, it's suit and tie, everything. So I have no tie. I'm, I'm casual today. I'll leave it open. But Funny enough, we really actually at Lone Star, we can talk about this, but have a very strict company culture in reference to attire and dress code. It suits, it's certain color schemes and whatnot. And, you know, we are a younger firm. So we feel as if that's also maybe not a competitive advantage, but a way we want to treat ourselves and conduct ourselves to be kind of in that manner and to, you know, respect ourselves, but to uphold a certain standard. Well, that's important. And certainly they all play a part in the overall vision philosophy of of any organization. So it's casual Monday for me today, but with the heat here in Florida, it's very hard for us to dress any other way. Well, let's transition. And we're talking a little bit about Lone Star. You know, so here you are, you're a top 1% real estate professional, which would by any standard would be an aspiration for anyone in that industry. And then you folded that up and said, I'm going to go to the other side of the equation, which is to become a run and business development for an investment firm and handle capital raising and other things. What caused that transition? You know, what was some of the whys behind that? And specifically, from a thought process standpoint for our listeners, they may be struggling with some tough decisions. They may have what feels like a good deal that anyone would want, yet sometimes it's okay to say, let me see what else is out there. So walk us through that a little bit. Great question. It's a really interesting one because you think about the fact that you, as an agent, you know, in Arizona, it's like $20 million plus, I believe is top 1%. So I hit that threshold and, you know, it is a great life and it was tough. And I had a lot of people ask me, I've not seen someone put so much of their time back for focus into something and then kind of pack their bags and leave so quickly and abruptly. It probably shocked a lot of people, but The way I look at it is I would rather have a slice of the watermelon versus 100% of the grape. So the pie and the ability in this space to create incredible wealth and in the compounding nature of it is far greater than the single family home sales space, frankly. So, you know, and moreover too, I mean, obviously in anything in life, you hope there's incremental momentum and compounding nature to everything. So of course that would happen likely in residential, but the way the business works in you know the multifamily space, the alternative space where this thing just kind of grows, the compounding and residual nature is much greater in this space than another space. And what is a million dollar sale is, you know, hey, you make good money on that. But with Lone Star right now, we're looking at a $100 million acquisition on a Houston portfolio. So you, you look at the numbers difference, there's just a lot of juice there and it's really stimulating, which I love. But then another thing to think about is the fact that every single year, you are starting at where everyone else says in residential real estate. January 1, unless you have a closing that day, well, I don't think it's even possible to close that day because title and escrow and banks, I don't think would allow it. But on January 1, no matter if you are the best agent for the last five years or a new person, everyone starts with zero sales. So climbing that mountaintop and having to do that much volume, you know, like 50 plus deals a year is an incredible amount of work. And you're working seven days a week. You're not working, you know, four or five days. So obviously I'm more than happy to always work on weekends as well. But the efficiency of this world and kind of the upside and kind of the geographical autonomy was really more appealing to me and just the overall lifestyle, plus just the space generally here. We're talking about substantially bigger figures and it was just more appealing to me. So that's kind of, you know, why 
I wanted to kind of switch and I kind of saw that writing on the wall. And, you know, I think the residential business space really is changing rapidly overnight with, you know, a bunch of things kind of coming up There maybe potential, or there is a, a lawsuit regarding maybe eliminating buyer agents commissions as well. Not that it's only about the commission, but there's just going to be a lot of disrupting going on in that space that I don't know if I want to be kind of the dinosaur in a digital age world. So I, just thought that this is a good situation. And you know, moreover, not everyone's best friend is Rob Beardsley. He's one of my best friends. And the opportunity was too great to pass up. So it just was really an organic setup. And three years ago, if you told me where I'm at right now, I probably wouldn't believe you, but I'm really grateful nonetheless. Well, how cool. And it's great to hear people thinking through the big picture. And, and I love your analogy. And you hit it on the head. And you know, we talk a lot about building wealth is different than making money making money is you're doing it every year. And the minute you stop doing it, the minute you stop making money and, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a real estate professional. It can be a great career, but you've got to either supplement that with some sort of wealth building tool and strategy, passive income, passive investing. Otherwise you're going to trade your labor for dollars. And so for you, you know, you're still at that point career wise where you can make that transition. And for many, they're thinking, gosh, you probably left a lot of money on the table But sounds like you looked at that in the short term and looked and said, yeah, the upside's too great. You would be really surprised how quickly business will dry up if you don't water it. So even this year, it's like some people have reached out to me and whatnot. I've been been able to help a couple of people, which I'm really grateful to do. But you'd be very impressed and very shocked by if you don't keep that wheel pumping and turning and turning and turning, the phone's going to stop ringing. Immediately when I left the Bay Area first time around and I got that business going and I left, no calls, no nothing. So it was crazy. So it is quite alarming what that looks like as opposed to this world. There would be, I already can tell, there'd be a lot more overflow and lag and people messaging and stuff, which is really cool. It's just a different world. So it's a different beast. Yeah. Well, out of sight, out of mind. And when you're out working the market and pounding the pavement, the minute you stop, yeah, that waterfall or that spigot kind of turns off behind it. So I love talking about people's background and how they got into stuff and how they transition. I think if there's anything that our listeners can take away from any of these discussions, but this one specifically is really, hey, don't worry about what you're doing today. Even if you're the most successful in what you're doing, could you be the most successful in something else that has more upside or even moderately successful in something that has more upside? So good for you, Craig, for kind of walking through that journey. And and thanks for sharing that. We're going to take a quick pivot to one of my favorite segments on the show, which is our quirky questions of the day. I think Craig has listened to the show, so he's got at least a slight idea where we're headed, but no one actually knows what's in the envelope. So if you do want to submit any quirky questions, remember it's Maggie with a Y at Newview with a U, uh, trust.com. All right, here we go. Fire away. All right, we got three of them in here. And so we'll pull this out and get started. If I can get this out of the envelope. They must be good. They're hard to get out. Ooh, this is a good one. Ready? If someone wrote a book about your life, what would the title be? I would say, Don't Sit Still. Okay. I love that. That may be the title of the show today. So I'm looking over at Maggie. She's got a grin. So I'm thinking she likes that as well. And by the way, it's very rare we get a title out of the quirky questions of the day. So this is a double win. Question number two, Craig, you ready? If you had to make a house out of food, what kind of food would it be? I think the only logical explanation would be a coconut because of a hard shell. Okay, so you're going food and house for stability, durability, longevity? A shelter, yeah. 
Yeah. And so for me, I'm reading that thinking if the house was something I could slowly eat at, what would I want it to be? So there goes a slightly different thought process. If your house is made out of, you know, a banana, that's just too mushy. It wouldn't work out. But coconut, hard shell, sweet, you know, I think that's the best bet you have. No, you you were spot on on that one and and you were quick to answer. I I feel like maybe that question's come up a time or two in your lifetime. It hasn't. I'm good on my feet. (laughs) All right. Number three, if you could create a new invention, what would it be? Anything. I'd probably teleportation. You'd be the wealthiest person in the world if you could hack that. So I'll take teleportation. All day long. I've got a 12-year-old son and and I argued with him the other day because he asked, would you rather teleport or would you rather fly? And I said, well, that one's so easy to me. I'd rather teleport. Yeah, flying is obsolete if you can teleport. Who needs that? He tried convincing me the value of flying, and it was a fun discussion. Here's the thing. All you have to do with following to solve the flying thing is just get some wings, teleport yourself to the sky, and then you can fly and drop down, and then you can maneuver how you so please. You see, Craig, people are going to think you had the answers or the questions too soon, knowing, hearing some of your answers, so... I can assure you there's no teleprompter here. Uh, Well, we love the quirky questions, guys. Craig, thank you for participating. Remember, if you do want to submit those, it's Maggie at NewViewTrust.com. All right, let's get back to kind of the meat and potatoes. And we talked about don't sit still, right? And this idea of moving and, and really exiting out of what was really a very successful career in real estate to transition to a different type of real estate. So Maybe just help the audience, just give a quick cursory overview of kind of the syndication side of the world and maybe Lone Star from a a high level and kind of what they do. And and then we can talk a little bit about what you're doing there and and kind of the why behind it. Yeah. So essentially, we are, you know, in the multifamily apartment syndication space, which is basically pulling together investors' monies to buy assets. So Lone Star Capital is a Texas vertically integrated sponsor, focusing on workforce housing in Houston and Dallas primarily. We've got about 2,500 plus units, just under 3,000 now, with about $350 million of assets under management. We work for workforce housing, which is renter by necessity. And that's kind of the space we plant. Okay, cool. Well, we've talked a little bit about a variety of different syndications. And the thing that that I've always loved about the opportunity with syndications is it gives investors a chance to participate in deals that they may not have the wherewithal to underwrite or secure or source or finance on their own, but they get to play. I kind of liken it almost to like a mutual fund of real estate. You're getting exposure to a deal or a series of deals that look different than maybe a rental house in in your backyard or community. I mean, think about this. Imagine if you're walking in Miami and you see a building in Brickell and you see that building in Brickell and it's like, well, I wonder who owns that. It's like, well, a real estate syndication group could own that and they pulled together and you could have been an investor in it. So there's opportunities for, you know, the everyday person, which I'm an everyday person to be a part of deals that you wouldn't normally be a part of yourself or wouldn't necessarily have access to, but, you know, collectively through a group together, it's achievable. So it's a really great way for you to kind of play in a different space and to, be able to diversify what you can invest in typically, as opposed to your point, just a single family, you know, house or a duplex or a, a fourplex, something like that. So it lets you get a seat at the table at a different asset class and, you know, allows you to play where the institutional money is, which is incredible. So it's a really cool space. I'm newer to it, relatively speaking, as many people are, or, you know, I guess a couple of years, I know about it by now, but it's an ingenious way to create wealth and be a part of something that's you know bigger than what you probably could afford yourself, obviously. You know, if you're talking about, you know, a $50 million building, tough to own. But if you get a sliver of it, that's awesome. 
Yeah. Well, syndications really have, you know, they've been around forever, but we've seen the last probably three to five years. And syndication is not an asset class, right? Syndication is an investment structure, but the asset classes inside of syndications are so much fun. And we'll hone in a little bit more on the multifamily space today, specifically the workforce housing, as that's really kind of the sweet spot for Lone Star. Let's start with geographics. You mentioned kind of the Texas market specifically, Dallas, Houston. Why those markets? What is about the geography there that keeps you going? And are there any plans or ideas of branching out beyond maybe those core markets? Yeah. So we just got momentum early on as a firm in the Texas area. The mentor that Ken and Rob have, the, the founders of the company, ended up actually owning in Houston. So it just made sense. Houston, generally speaking, has really great kind of returns and you know has a very similar setup as Dallas or Austin per se, but at a much reasonable and easier buy-in price and you know a little less competitive to buy in. So there's some good alpha there. You know, we like Texas just generally as a market due to the fact that it's landlord friendly. It's a place with growth. And you know, we don't really want to play in a market where the rules can change on us overnight. You know, there's no rent control there. So you know it's a free market if you will. And you know, at least for now it is and those are some of the things we love about it. it. Just, you know, logistically speaking, it makes sense. And we were there before all of the tailwinds of COVID. So, you know, obviously, as you can imagine, it's blown up and, you know, there's a lot more competition there now, but, you know, that's just a place we want to stay in. And as far as leaving Houston and Dallas, you know, we think there's a half a billion dollars a year we can buy there consistently every year. There's a lot of product there that we like, and we you know we have our own in-house management there. So from an efficiency perspective, from an economies of scale perspective, it logistically speaking makes a lot of sense for us just to kind of stay there and, you know, just become the pros and, you know, hopefully be the people that get the first look on the buy side. You mentioned something that a lot of people don't think about. And from a scalability standpoint, that's maintenance. You know, if you own one rental unit or let's say three rental units, you know, it's hard to scale maintenance, especially if they're in different geographic areas, even inside the same city or town. But when you've got 350 doors in building A and, you know, a mile down the road, you've got 200 doors and two miles down the road. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you mentioned kind of let, let's dig our heels into the Houston market, into the Dallas market. Let's be the best we can in that market. There's no shortage of opportunity, it sounds like, on the buy side. So how do you see that or what do you do that allows you to scale and create additional efficiency by really saying in two core markets? Yeah, I mean, essentially hiring and stuff becomes a lot easier. Your ability to project what, you know, labor should cost and what your site staff should cost becomes a lot easier. You know, additionally, we just bought a apartment complex. We're in escrow on one that's right next door to something that we have, which is like 200 plus units. And then we just closed another one in, I want to say, November of 2022 that similarly was legitimately sharing the fence of another property we had. So, you know, you can save money on payroll. You can save money on your maintenance staff. Now everyone has spread us thin. So it's incredible. And also we had great data as to what rent should go for. So things like that really do make a difference when, you know, we're talking about pushing rent up universally five bucks can create maybe a half million dollars in value, something as small as that. So when it comes to incrementally getting better and incrementally improving efficiencies, those little numbers compounding, sacking up over a three to four year period on the whole is an incredible, incredible amount of money that can be created and value that can be created. Absolutely. You know, it's amazing when you think about multifamily, you don't think about buying the one next door, right? You know, we think of that in, in more single family, but what a great opportunity. Let's talk about asset class. Now, you had already kind of highlighted this workforce 
you know, renter by necessity form of multifamily. What's that mean? Let's talk a bit about that because I know and understand that being in this space, but help the listeners kind of understand the why behind staying inside of that workforce type multifamily. Yeah, well, first off, if any developer is going to build something right now with how expensive labor is, insurance is, cost is, zoning and titling, all of that, it probably has to be class A, which is, you know, the, the highest end, call it 2500 bucks a month, $2,000 a month rent, which is pushing the affordability ceiling for the average American. So there's a complete supply issue in the workforce space, which is kind of that $1,100 to $1,900 a month. And I know it's pretty vast, but kind of in that sweet spot range of rent, depending upon the market you're in. So we, we feel as if that's just a great sweet spot because that's not being developed right now. So it's an incredible niche to play into. It's more affordable. It kind of hits what the average American can pay a month per rent. So it just, logistically speaking, makes a lot of sense because they're not developing for it. And there's just a ton of space there. And sometimes these properties are maybe not as appreciated as they should be. Maybe there's some deferred maintenance and the owners owned it for a while. It, there's always a ton of stories as to why to buy it. But you know, I think the biggest thing to think of is the supply and demand thing. And you can't really build supply for anything like in that range unless the government really helps subsidize the project. I think every market, whether it be Arizona, where you're physically located, Texas, Florida, where, where I'm at, or really anywhere else, there continues to be workforce housing shortages. You know, we're, we're seeing it everywhere and, and certainly love to hear that that's being tackled and addressed. And it's okay to make that a value play in the marketplace. Well, it's sad. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, are really struggling to afford or they're looking around at, you know, let's just say something that we buy that they're getting charged a heavy, you know, amount, but they would like to pay a little bit more, not they can't afford everything, but they would like to play more for a better product. Or maybe they're in a unit right now and these are reputational issue where there's violence and stuff. So we're really coming in there and, you know, helping getting that cleaned out and creating a safe environment, not only for the apartment complex, but the general community around it. It's really important to also think about that. And when these places, you know, are kind of left a certain way, the area also will change as well. So the culture of the local vicinity will also change. So fixing that and curing that can actually have more benefits than just obviously bumping up, you know, the investor's wallet, but, you know, for the, the whole community impact. Absolutely. And you had mentioned earlier kind of this, hey, if we can bump rents five bucks, right, or whatever the number is, that creates an exponential amount of value in the asset itself for those that, you know, maybe aren't, you know, as in tune on the commercial side, commercial doesn't value on an appraisal, right? I mean, we think of residential, someone goes out and says, okay, this home has a price per square foot in the marketplace of X times the number of square feet. And here's the rough price. Yeah. in single family, it's like, Hey, these are all the same development that was developed in 2014. These are all, you know, houses that are called 600 square feet. 1800 square feet as opposed to you know multifamily it's like well maybe this place has got washer and dryer hookups or has a tech package on it or has reserve and covered parking or has atms in it that create xyz difference in value with these little add-ons so it's the yield play to your point that you know creates a difference in where you can sell the property at which is awesome so let's talk about some of those value adds i mean obviously the goal of your business really is to improve the value of properties, right? And reduce the expenses. We talked a little bit about scalability, which drives more bottom line income. And that obviously bolsters the value of the property. So, you know, you mentioned a few things, right? Tech packages and washer and dryer hookups, reserve parking. What are some of the things that you guys do look for when you're underwriting a property as value add opportunities? Yeah. So what we look at is, I think the most important thing for me, if I'm going to invest in something, which I invest in most of our deals, so fortunately it falls into this, is supply coming up. What's supply like? Is there going to be you know a thousand more units coming to a five mile vicinity where 
if you're basically the upper end or middle tier, are you going to get dropped down to a lower tier and a lower grade? Because you've got a ton of units coming up like Austin, great market, but there's thousands upon, I think it's about 50,000 is being built right now. So what happens to anything that's built in 2012? Is that going to be rendered a B plus now? Because it's just not as nice as the latest and greatest. So, you know, that's something we look for. The other thing we look for is, hey, how many units is there and how many units of those are original? And what are the original units getting as opposed to the updated units? Is there a demand for the updated units? You know, washer and dryer, maybe there's curb appeal, maybe there's terrible signage, maybe the leasing office is mismanaging it and there's a miss of occupancy. Maybe it's 100% occupied and they're not pushing rents up enough. And there's about a $300 delta between your competition down the street and where you're at. And, you know, the place down the street that's you know, $300 higher, it's at 93%. It's like, well, I can imagine that if you, you know, sorted it out and maybe just met in the middle, you're creating millions of dollars of value without maybe even having to do any sort of a value back plan. So every property kind of tells a different story and it's just up for the sponsor, you know, Lone Star Capital and, you know, the acquisitions team to kind of decipher where value can be created and what does that look like and what's the timetable horizon for that. Yeah. And obviously underwriting is critical, right? You got to go in and you know you highlighted, I think, some things that make a lot of sense, right? 100% occupancy. Most people would look and say, that's amazing. But 100% occupancy at the risk of income is not necessarily adding value. Yeah. And there's a lot of times like the property that was bought right next door from the other one, as they said, in Houston in, in November or so, that was a situation where occupancy was, excuse me, roughly about 100%. And we had original units. So it was a perfect storm for us to create a ton of value. So you think that's a good thing. But I would say if you have 10 units, maybe 100% occupancy is great occupancy. But once you get to 150 plus, which is kind of the game that we're playing in, that's kind of a red flag. You almost want people to think it's a good deal, but not take it too quickly. I know it sounds kind of funny and maybe kind of intuitive, but if people are too eager to rent, then the price is telling you something. You want to feel, want everyone to feel a little uncomfortable. Absolutely. You know, it, I'm sure taking you back to your old real estate days, you know, if you're getting a bunch of offers on a house right away, that's a sign that maybe there was some opportunity to price it a tad bit higher. And the beauty of commercial real estate, even though, you know, we think of multifamily as being more of a residential play, it's really uh, commercial real estate is the way that it values and that ability to drive value by simply making more money on the asset and you do that by, you know, some of these value add plays that we're talking about. Greg, let's just maybe kind of bring this part to a close on underwriting. We talked about your acquisitions team, you know, a ballpark for us, just from perspective, how many deals do you look at as a firm before you even consider moving forward with it? Hundreds. And when Lone Star, and I'm really proud to say this, when Lone Star comes live with the deal, that means that we have likely submitted 10 to 20 offers on something because we submit LOIs on a lot of properties. I can't necessarily quantify it, but we put a incredible amount of offers out and then there's best and finals in a bunch of places and then we get finally awarded a deal. So when we go through that process, it's hundreds of deals that we look through to buy one. So we look at a ton of things and you know when we go live with something, we're really proud of it and we know that it's a great market deal and it's an awesome opportunity because the gatekeeping process to go through is, is really intense for us. So we get a lot of broker deal flow just due to our name and reputation and portfolio size. So when we go live, we're incredibly proud. Yeah. Well, it's amazing the amount of 
properties that typically have to be reviewed for a deal to be created. And just because it's a deal doesn't mean it's going to close. It just means it's a discussion point. Well, cool. Well, listen, Craig, I appreciate you kind of walking us through that, both your little bit of your backstory as well as Lone Star. I do want to hit you with our lightning round. I got three questions, not quirky, but important, some related, some are unrelated to our discussion today. So we'll dive right into them and fire into them. We'll start with number one, worst part about being a real estate sales professional. What was the thing that bothered you the most or, or the biggest challenge for you? The high and low, the high and low. Yeah, ups and downs. Cool. Number two, who's got better food, the Bay Area or Scottsdale? The Bay Area. Hate to say it, but the Bay Area. Uh, a bigger populace, I think, there too. Bigger populace, also more culturally diverse. You've got you know a ton of people in the Asian communities, which is awesome, you know, obviously. And there is the best Thai food you could have, Chinese food, Indian food, you name it, they have it. A little more robust. And also Mexican food in Arizona is not good. The best <laughs> Mexican food in the world, in my opinion, is the Bay Area. And you can't change my mind on that. All right. Question number three and, and final question, and we'll get you off the hot seat here. Craig, five, seven years from now, where's Craig going to be? With Lone Star Capital with over a billion dollars of assets under management. All right. It sounds like that's a question you've asked yourself multiple times. And I love the deliberateness of the answer to that. Well, Craig, listen, we enjoyed the time today. I uh, love getting to catch up a little bit and hear a little bit more about your backstory. And I love this kind of don't sit still mentality. And it sounds like that's really served you well through your career to date. Absolutely. No, and I appreciate being here. And, you know, it's just something that I'm pretty ADD. If you see me, I'm always pacing around. So for me to sit right now, I have to do a conversation when I think about just doing kind of computer work it sometimes drives me crazy. So conversations are always my favorite and connecting with people is always the best. Wonderful. Well, we wrap up every single show the same way, and that's the Learn Before You Burn segment. This is the opportunity for you to share a lesson and experience that you got the hard way. And the goal of this is for our listeners to get that lesson without having to touch the hot stove. So, Craig, let's close it down with your Learn Before You Burn bit of advice for our listeners today. So I didn't learn the hard way on this one, fortunately, but I will say this, and this is the Learn Before You Burn to everyone I say, don't be too eager to invest and get into your first deal. When you're you know, a new investor, when you start making some money, only thing cooler than making money is investing money and you know, letting that kind of grow. And it's so natural to wanna get really gung-ho and get super happy on your first investment. But you wanna make sure it really makes sense before you give out your hard-earned dollars because newsflash, you can lose money in real estate. The market does not always go up. You do not always have these COVID bull runs that are kind of a double back-to-back -back bull run because the market was so strong from 2012 to 2016 and then call it from 2020 when the rates dropped basically until 2022, right? Don't be too eager to make your first investment. Tons of people lose money in things and be very cautious and make sure you like the deal for good principal reasons, not just because you get emotionally sold on something or because you're in a place where you're starting to make money and you want to throw it out just as quickly as you made it. So be patient and good things will come. I love it. Be patient, be deliberate, but invest and invest soundly. That is absolutely great advice, Craig. Well, listen, man, great having you on your show. Congratulations on your individual success and the success of Lone Star. Looking forward to maybe five years down the road, having you back on the show and talking about that billion dollars of AUM. So keep on working hard. Good things are coming. Thank you so much, Jason, and to the New View team. I appreciate you guys and you're some of the best in the business. We look forward to only working with you guys more and more and more.
Cool. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, everybody. And if you have not liked, shared, or subscribed, please do so. It uh, helps us build our community. Remember, our goal on the All About Alts podcast is simply to help people understand what's out there from an investment standpoint, and then help you keep more of that by focusing on the tax efficiency piece of it. So, Thank you so much for listening. For we hope Thanks the information everybody. within we'll this podcast has given you the Leave tools that you need to find your right way now. to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS. That's A-L-T-S to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content and we'll see you next week.